Hi, y'all. Welcome back to PG Keen. I'm Vivian Liddell, and this is my podcast. For the next two episodes, we're going to be visiting Chattanooga, Tennessee. I've been up there twice already in the past month, and will be headed up again shortly as I have my own art thing, a show going on at Versa Gallery up there. So something to think about for those of you who are non-artists or those of you who are artists like me who made it a goal to have some out-of-state shows. Every show has art drop-off, an install, and then an opening reception, and then a deinstall. So if you're not financially well-off to ship your work, if it's giant pieces that can get really expensive, that means that at least three trips are going to happen for every show that you have. Um, yeah, I'm not complaining. I'm still uh, happy I'm having the show, but just kind of putting in context here what's going on with these episodes. Chattanooga is in my home state, and I haven't really visited there since I was a kid and did the whole Ruby Falls Lookout Mountain thing. So it's been really eye-opening for me to reconnect with the community and see what's up there from an adult point of view. I was expecting, I guess, some kind of version of my childhood tourist experience mixed with some uber conservatism after kind of sizing up the billboard activity on the edges of town on my recent drives through and around Chattanooga. But I'm happy to report that my preconceived, very general notions about what might be happening in Chattanooga were, as usual, way off base. (laughs) So I'm pretty sure that uber conservatism is there, but uh, there's a strong, what I'm going to call, underground uh, scene happening as well. And although this underground is on the surface enough that me, a middle-aged mother of two, way past my hip years, could still obtain access. Is that ageist? Am I being ageist against myself? Maybe it is. Anyway, I am an artist, and I guess that overrides all that other mom, soccer mom, old person stuff in my ability to seek out a creative community. I was, after all, being introduced to the area by a group of young gallerists, the folks at Versa, who definitely do have their fingers on the pulse. After a little longer drive than I had expected, I took the back roads through the mountains to avoid Atlanta traffic. Literally ended up on the official Trail of Tears route. It was hazy and rainy, beautiful, but definitely not a fast-moving route. So after what ended up being a four and a half hour drive, Google Maps originally said it was going to be three, y'all. Four and a half. I got into town um, late on a Friday evening, unpacked all of my art, in the rain and pretty much installed the whole show with the help of the of three of the folks from Versa. Getting back to my home base maybe around 11 that night, I stayed with a dude named Emerson, who's a local arts patron, friend of the gallery. All the art people in town seemed to know him. Great guy. He was an incredible host. And then got up early on Saturday morning and had a quick but pretty awesome breakfast at his recommendation at a place called Need Loves. And then headed over to the studio of Katie Hargrave to meet up with her and her collaborator, Meredith Lynn, who is in town from Florida. I spoke to them a little about their individual paths, but mostly about their collaborative work, specifically a body of work that they are currently putting together for an exhibition at the Wiregrass Museum in Dothan, Alabama, that explores the American landscape using video, photography, 
and site-specific installation. The building that Katie's studio is in used to be owned by the Red Cross, but is now home to the art studios of the faculty at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. It's got that late 60s mod industrial office vibe going on on the outside. Brick, kind of uh, long rectangular windows with some blue color blocking. And on the inside, there was a lot of red still happening. Red walls, a red piano, I think. I guess from some not-so-creative branding on behalf of the former inhabitants. And the whole place was in various stages of transformation that seemed to be happening by the will of the faculty, depending on their various studio needs. We didn't actually record in Katie's studio, but in another room that we thought would be better acoustics down the hall that housed what looked like retro technology plastic boxes, maybe old projectors or something, I commented to Katie that they reminded me of cat carriers. And she was talking to Meredith about one of them being her risograph machine and the battle to separate important art supplies from trash in the eyes of the custodial staff. I know all of us who teach at universities have fought that battle. You guys know what I'm talking about. Anyway, to give you a visual, imagine the three of us sitting in office chairs appropriate to the late 60s in a small carpeted room surrounded by random office equipment. The overhead lights were fluorescents, and when I mentioned to Katie that I hate fluorescent lights, she brought in some incandescents, so then we had kind of a nice mood lighting going on for our chat. As I mentioned, it was early on a Saturday, and there were no other faculty around, so we had the whole building to ourselves, minus a few cops who were seemingly there staking out the security situation. We started off by talking about where Meredith was from, as we were all mic-checking and trying not to worry too much about the sound of our own voices on tape. Check it out. So, I can fix the high pitch too. Oh, okay. <laughs> you want to? I can make you sound like a robot if you would like. Well, I'm, I'm from regions that are known for their terrible accents that are very grating to other. people. Where are you from? I'm from Boston originally, and okay. then my family moved to Pittsburgh, and those are like two of the most annoying accents to like <laughs> everyone else in the country. So. And then you lived in Minnesota. Yeah, and then I lived in Minnesota for a long time too. So. So all of the, all of the very intense. Yes, bad regional accents. So. So what are you doing here? How I, did you end up? Uh, are you in Chattanooga? No. Okay. Meredith is based in Tallahassee. Okay. Um, so she just got up last night also um, for us to be able to work on this project together. Nice. Yeah. Are you teaching in Tallahassee? Yeah, I'm at Florida State. Okay. Um, I'm the curator of the Museum of Fine Arts nice. at FSU, and I teach in the uh, College of Fine Arts. So I'm having a show in Tallahassee in July. Oh, excellent. At the 621. Oh, great, great, great. Well, send me the info. Come say hi to you. (laughs) That's a really cool space. They do some excellent shows there. Nice. So, very cool. So, you're just up for the weekend? Yes. Yeah. So, Katie and I are doing this project together. Uh, We, maybe two years ago, went on, a year and a half ago, did this residency in Oregon. Okay. uh, Called Signal Fire, where we camped out. Signal Fire is really unique in that they um, they do backpacking uh, and expedition-based artist residencies. So they give you a really specific list of what you're able to bring, and they make essentially a course packet. <laughs> and then so I brought really incredible everything readings. else, and Katie had to yell at me. Cause you, I, for, you didn't follow the list? Yeah, they, well, had, I, they were like, you can yeah. bring three pairs of underwear. And, and I had like seven. <laughs> but to, in my defense, I had just come from Gentile in Wyoming, and so mm-hmm. I had all of the stuff from being in Wyoming okay. for a month, and so it was a little wild. But um, yeah, so we did this residency together in Eastern Oregon, 
Um, and for both of us, I think it was the first residency we've been on that was majority women and majority people of color, which was really different um, and a pretty powerful way to spend time in the outdoors. And we also drove. So I had recently gotten a Prius, and which means that like, you can drive anywhere and it doesn't cost anything, as you know. Yes. Uh, I also have a Prius. So. <laughs> oh, wow. So I picked Meredith up at Gentel, and then we drove out to eastern Oregon and spent many days um, together in the car and camping and in different types of um, public land. And then um, while we were driving, we became really interested in the naming conventions of RVs. You know, mm. they have they have really strange like Eagles Landing. Yeah, something like I I just yeah. made that up by the way. No, that probably, probably is totally that could be an RV. No, that could it probably, probably is an RV. <laughs> yeah. Um, my favorite is Solitude. Mm. I like Citation. Yeah. So, well, it's so bizarre because it's like, do you mean citation like um, the cops pulled you over? Yes, yeah, like the cops pulled you over and you are getting a citation. Do you mean like a citation in a scholarly article that you're, <laughs> no. you know, it's very bizarre. I love it. They're, they're super strange. And so we started just making up RV names, mm-hmm. you know, as a kind of... Um, you know, Manifest Destiny, which might also be a, um, an RV, RV name. Yeah, Wolfpack. Um, yeah. Uh, and um, when we came back from the residency, started talking about making a um, zine or doing a project about that. Um, and then um, uh, we had the opportunity last fall um, to put together a zine um, for the show that was at in Memphis, Extensions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, with Walls Divide, Walls Divide Press. Um, and, uh, for that, we started playing around with like the visual conventions of RVs and, um, so you're, you're like camping on this residency. Are you guys in a tent? Yes, we were in, um, a two person tent that was lovely, wonderful tent, um, but we like routinely, uh, we would be like, our tent would be on a slightly uneven ground. And so I, and somehow Katie was always downhill. Of me, <laughs> and so I would gradually like encroach on her in the middle of the night. And then she would like, uh, gently push me <laughs> back. And so we spent, it was like a very intimate mm-hmm three weeks that we spent camping. And I was wondering, like, if that was making you think about the class system of the camping uh, grounds, you know, with the RVs Mm -hmm. is, like, one type of thing, and the people in the tents is another. Yeah. I think also for us it um, made some of the, like, different regional um, experiences of camping become more clear. So, for Mm. instance, like, if you camp in Florida – almost no one will be in a tent right. any time of year. Yeah. Either it's too hot, and so they're in their RV with their air conditioning, or they perceive it to be too cold, um, right. even though it is not actually too <laughs> yeah, cold. it's never too cold, yeah. Um, so there is a kind of uh, sense that being in a tent is unusual. Yeah. And also, um, we I have never actually been in an RV. I've never done any actual RV camping, which is also interesting that I'm... Now, with them. now obsessed with them and we're doing this project. Um, but I, so I really didn't know anything about them. And then in the process of becoming interested in them, I did a, started doing research into like the economics of owning an RV. And, um, and you think, I always thought that it was 
relatively inexpensive, um, like an inexpensive way to travel. And now I'm discovering that it's actually like quite costly to maintain your RV and then rent the space for it in the campsite. And that it's like, it, it's not an efficient in any way. Yeah. It's not an efficient way to go on vacation. They're really bad for the environment. Yeah. And so there's this, this strong contrast between the idea that you are able to bring all of the comforts from home to yeah. see these idyllic landscapes um, and what the impact they have on those idyllic landscapes, right? I actually spent a lot of time in RVs when I was growing up. Oh, you did? Really? <clears throat> yeah, because my grandparents had one. We used to drive it. So they lived in Memphis. And we used to drive it around Memphis to look at Christmas lights. Like it was a thing you like get into your big campers and like get in a line of cars to like drive by Graceland and like see all the lights. Would you camp then or just was it like an evening? Well, that was like an evening affair. So we would Mm -hmm. take it out for like, I remember really enjoying this because the whole family would get in the, we would have like popcorn and snacks and like we would look out the window and see everybody's Christmas lights. Like you're in your living room. Yeah. Like you're in your living room, but driving around Memphis. And then we also took it on camping trips, and my grandparents would have the big RV, and then all their children would have, like, satellite tents and campers. And, like, my grandparents' RV was, like, the center where you could, like, take a shower and have my grandmother would cook for everybody. They do seem like a mobile community in a way. And so we have recently – we're working on a project at the – for the Wiregrass Museum of Art. Um, We're going to have a show that opens there in – July, and um, so we're working on like a large scale installation that is going that is about RV culture. Oh my gosh, that sounds RV super imagery. exciting! Yeah, we're excited about it in you know Dothan because of the um, it's like on the way to the beach, yeah. right? Like it's yeah, that's, it's very close. Yeah. I love the wire grass. Yeah, all yeah, those folks there. Um, yeah, we're we're really um, pleased and lucky to be able to have that show. Um, but so, so which are you doing the main space? Or are you doing that smaller, smaller gallery? Oh, yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Um, which is great because we're going to be doing some light installations, and so that allows us to have some more control um, okay. than that big main space has. But um, we've been looking into, in particular, the airstream, and airstream culture is like next level RV culture. Yeah. Um, to the point that I didn't realize, and I think. Um, all of us are too young to have like been in the heyday of the Airstream, but there are Airstream specific campsites around the country and they have a Airstream rodeo every year. That still happens where people from all over the country come to like a specific location with their Airstream and only Airstreams are allowed to go. Um, it's, just, it's highly fascinating and mm-hmm. very class driven mm-hmm. um, airstreams are very expensive now and i know people yes. renovate them and yeah um make well, them into this whole we, so we actually so we did this project over the winter break we rented a van like a panel van and turned it into a camera obscura and then drove it around state parks in florida um and recorded the imagery that we were getting um that was sort of mediated through the van as like both a means of transportation and a space you could live in and a way to interact with the landscape in some way. So how'd you make the camera obscure just for people who may not be familiar? Did you like tape off the whole? We did. Yes. We were real creepers. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And actually Katie like made me be the, like the real creeper because basically what we did, we like 
covered all of the windows in black vinyl <laughs> and like blocked out all of the light. And then, Did you put a picture of an ice cream cone? On the yeah, side no, of we should have. That would have been Basically. Well, so then we're driving. Around, we had to drive around, and I had to drive. I was driving the van, and I had to drive it very slowly. Because I'm sitting in the back. And Katie's in the back, like, in this open van, like, recording and setting up the equipment and managing all of that. And so I'm driving around these campsites incredibly slowly, <laughs> like, talking to myself because no one knows that Katie's in the back. And, um, and, and I'd be like, back up five feet, back yeah. up five feet. And then she'd be like, stop, wait. And then I would just stop <laughs> and people would be standing there like staring at me and I would be like, can I, and people would be like, who are you? And basically we determined that we, as, as women, we have a lot of privilege for being super creepy and people would give us the benefit <clears throat> of the doubt. Cause I think if I were a dude, someone would have called the cops. Yeah. Like, yes. Undoubtedly. But perhaps that's what we get for the fact that we never feel comfortable in public yes. lands otherwise. Yes. So yes, it's exactly. Kind of, it's a trade it's a nice, yeah, right. yeah, it's a compromise. So um so then so that worked really well. We got really amazing images and um we were excited about it. And so now we're actually in May, we're renting an airstream in outside of Joshua Tree, and yeah. we're going. So, what did you? How did you record the images? Uh, were they on film? Were they a digital? Yeah, um, uh, digital video, um, and with my DSLR. Okay. Um, yeah. And they're it's quite amazing, actually. We um, got into some nerd forums about um, reading glasses mm-hmm. um, because you can use a reading glass lens to focus a camera obscura. Oh yeah. Um, so that was, that felt like next level nerdy. Yeah. Um, yeah. But like reading about optics. And... Yeah. Um, really beautiful, clean um, images. But of course, um, for those people who might not be familiar with the camera obscura, the camera obscura flips the image. Um, so everything is upside down, um, even though it's legible and bright enough that you can see it. You know, the, there is something that is made strange. Yeah. Um, in the way that it is visible, um, which is exciting. We were, you know, kind of thinking about what does the uh, vehicle do to the landscape, right? Like it closes you off from the landscape, but it also makes the landscape accessible because many people who might travel in an RV wouldn't otherwise backpack or tent camp. Um, so there is this kind of um, <clears throat> awkwardness uh to the vehicle but it does make um the space available to a broader public and so those are some of the kind of like things we're thinking about yeah like the um the way we use tools and technology to interact with the landscape and with the environment around us that in some ways these these tools help us and then in some ways they hinder us and that it, sometimes in our appreciation, our desire to experience the environment and appreciate the environment, we're actually doing damage, right? And so we have this very complex relationship to the space, the public spaces around us. Um, and so, and I think for Katie and I, it's also important that we're we're doing these projects mostly on public land. And so, um, because there's been so many um, layers of conversation and discussion and arguments about what public land is and who it serves and really what it's there for mm-hmm. and, and who it belongs to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're also interested in that that conversation as well. And we feel a certain responsibility. And I think this comes out of our experience with Signal Fire. We feel a certain responsibility to be advocates for public land 
and um, and so it's important that we're doing this in state parks mm-hmm. and in national parks. But I would also say advocates for access to public yes. land because that's something yeah. that you know in some of the protectionist language in terms of um, closing off public lands that really does become a elitist um, uh, and oftentimes racist um, sexist kind of experience of landscape because it's you know if if you're thinking about people who have the privilege to be able to get off the grid Mm -hmm. um, uh, that uh, or, or who feel safe getting off the grid into totally empty landscapes um, that tends to be people who look like John Muir, right? right. Um, yeah. And so it's so it's. I think for me, it's both of those things. Yeah, yeah, definitely. This is our. This is Meredith and I's first project working together, and we've known each other since grad school. Um, but our disciplinary homes are really different. So, yeah. so your grad school experience was before the residency that you yeah. did. Yeah. Okay. So We're, you knew each other before that residency. Yes. Yeah. We've we've known each other for probably about ten years now. Yeah. And okay. so, um, yeah, we went to. I was. I got an MFA in painting, and Katie was in the intermediate program, and so we um, definitely have a different. At where? University we, of Iowa. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so, um, we definitely have a different. Um, in some ways, we have a different background, but we actually have a really similar. I think ethics and sensibility in terms yeah. of thinking about what art can do and should do. Right. Um, but we do come from different backgrounds. Different media, similar yeah. conceptual interests. Yeah. And so when I saw this Signal Fire um, residency, I said, hey, you, we might think about applying applying to this and I can pick you up and we can drive together. We had no idea at that point that we were going to start to collaborate on things. Yeah. Um, and that has been... Um, you know, it's like any good collaboration, the work that we're making doesn't look like the work that either one of us would make on our own. Yeah. Um, and we're really nerding out on weird materials, um, and learning new skills. So we've been playing a lot with like reflective, um, vinyl, like, uh, engineering grade vinyl that would be used on roads and signage and, um, like these crazy glass beads that um, are used to on um, like road markings um, that that make um, they do really crazy things to our optics yeah. and our ability to see space. So, yeah. um, but it, that's not something that either one of us would have otherwise used in our work, right? Right. And even do you still do painting? I do. Yeah, I actually have a show uh, in California. Uh, be, right before we go to um, right before we go to Joshua Tree, that's going to be my painting work. But um, and and I, I I've never really been a um, like a painter's painter. Like the, I in graduate school, people are always like, "You're not even really a painter," and that's that's kind of a fair assessment. What what, what kind of work do you do? Well, I mostly do works on paper, and then a lot of text based work. And so the project that I'll be that I've been working on for the past couple years that I'll be um, showing is. A series of text-based paintings that um, gouache that relate to the language that we use to describe the frontier and the way that we have romanticized this landscape um, but then how through that romanticization um, there's a kind of violence that we also um, romanticize so kind of related to the rv certainly yeah definitely and i think and that's what's really interesting i think katie and i both in our work we we think about land and landscape and our relationship to land um, really frequently. Mm-hmm. And so, and it, it takes different, like, 
it takes different final outputs for the two of us, but it's something that we're both really thinking about a lot is like how how do our relationships to land reinforce certain mm-hmm. um, stereotypes and um, visions of this country and visions of you know what it means to be American mm-hmm. that um, that we find that we like to maybe critique and discuss through our work. Mm-hmm. And Katie, where are you from originally? I'm from Chicago. Okay. Um, I spent a ton of time in the car when I was a kid. My grandparents lived out in Pennsylvania, and so not not infrequently we would do like a 12-hour drive out there. And um, Where would you go? Where's, what's 12 hours from Chicago? Uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, okay. um, uh, near, near Harrisburg area. Um, a lot of buggies. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I've been to Hershey. I've been to Hershey, Pennsylvania, more times than I could count. Um, but that was our way of, you know, um, getting out. Was oftentimes to go to, you know, um, Gettysburg or other uh, battlefields. Um, we didn't go out west when I was a kid, but we were always in the car driving somewhere, and um, that's something that I really enjoy. I like that space. Um, I get. I still think I get like my best thinking done in the car, and I prefer car travel to other forms of travel. Um, like it's not, and and I think that that has influenced the work that I've been making. You know, since I was an undergrad, um, both both Meredith and I also are interested in storytelling. I think and yeah. and history, and so that comes into our work in a, a wide variety of forms. So. At the same time as you've been doing these text paintings, I've been doing like a series of zines that are looking at the history of photography in terms of public lands, um, the history of design standards in terms of public lands, um, you know, to try to understand like how do these things become institutionalized, right? And what happens as they become more institutionalized. So there's definitely like a Venn diagram, I would say, in terms of the some of the approaches that we use. Um, and the content of our work. So it seems pretty natural that we're working together now. Yeah. I think we um, are also the, both the kind of people that, like, we, we go to a, a park or a historical site and read, like, every everything available, <laughs> every, like, word. We actually, we went to um, Wounded Knee. Little Bighorn. Little Bighorn, right. That's where, and um, it was amazing. There was a, um, Katie always, not always, Katie routinely talks about wanting to be a park ranger as <laughs> my retirement dream. Yes, as like a second career. And so we go um, to Little Bighorn and there's one of the rangers there. We're talking to him and we're asking him a ton of questions because that's what we do. And um, it, he discloses to us that he's actually an art professor like during the year. <laughs> he's an art professor. And every summer he like works. At, and I was like, oh my God, that's yeah. so amazing. Yeah. You're and, like, this is a pop, my dream yes, to be a reality. Yes, yes. Yes. And Katie I was like, like, can we take a um, selfie with you? Yes. And Katie's like Instagramming about him. Like he's like a celebrity to her. Like, <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah. It was totally wild. Well, I don't know if you know, but the national parks have residency programs. Mm-hmm. And I and I and people ask me sometimes like, oh, are you thinking about applying to those? And they're in really amazing places. Like they have one at Dry Tortuga. Mm-hmm. Um, they have one, which is like the most remote um, national park. It's yes, in um, Florida, technically, but like in the middle of the Caribbean. Yeah, and yeah. You, you you have to go to this residency with one other person. Um, they recommend it not be your romantic partner because you have to be there with this person 
yeah. for three months. And, and there's no, there's, there's no water. No other, there's nothing. You have to, you have to take everything with you on this four Why do they recommend it not be your romantic partner? Because well, they, of the situ- the, the fights that could I think so, yeah. I think that's part of it. And I also think that they, you know, are wanting you to collaborate and, you know, okay. make um, projects. So I think we might be able to do something like that without yeah. killing each other. Um, but, you know, they, so they have that one. There's one that's uh, in Hawaii at like Volcano National Park, these really incredible idyllic landscapes. And then there's one at Gettysburg. And so a couple of people had said, oh, are you interested in this? And I was like, yes, the Gettysburg one is super cool. I really want to do that Gettysburg one. And they're like, you're a nerd. Yeah. <laughs> because most people want to go into like the really beautiful right. places and I'm much more Just interested Gettysburg. in the history. Yeah. So, um, Maybe someday, maybe someday. Where does that interest in history come from? Do you have a historian in the family or something? Do you like? No, I mean my my um, my grandparents, you know, live really close to lots of um, Civil War battlefields, and um, yeah. So I mean, that was the thing that we would always do when I was growing up. And then um, I'm really critical of history and the stories that are told. Um, I think it says so much about what we as a culture value, um, and it's a story, oftentimes, right? right? So, or it's yeah. a, it, um, like formal national histories are nationalistic, right? They're like there's a purpose to how they're being told. Um, so I'm really fascinated by that. I'm not. I'm definitely not trained in history in any way. But I did in grad school take a historiography class, like mm-hmm. to try to understand the way that history is. Um, told so it's definitely something that um, and I worked a lot in like archives when I was in grad school it was always like the job that I would have would be in the library in the archive so I'm super fascinated yeah you are pretty pretty geeky yeah very nerdy what's really funny is my family also like we used to take vacations to civil war battlefields which is also very funny Um, but my my family is from western Pennsylvania for many, many, many generations back. And so um, on the Pennsylvania Monument in Gettysburg, there's several Lynns that are listed as I happening. Didn't know that. Yeah, we we like my father and I used to go to Gettysburg all the time and like take rubbings of the um the the ancestors. And we actually have this um sort of family it's kind of legend and then also kind of history because it's been written about by some historians. But um a like great 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 uncle of mine was in the Battle of Gettysburg and uh, was on the first day, his regiment was um, like very heavily wounded and lots of lots of death and destruction. And he ended up hiding like under a pile of debris, essentially, and like also maybe a dead horse. There's sort of a lot of different ways that the story gets told now um, for three days for the rest of the battle. And then he after it was done, he got up and he walked home. To Somerset, Pennsylvania, and mm. Western Pennsylvania walked, you know, like 150 miles home uh, to his parents' house. And by the time he got there, um, like he was naked, he didn't have shoes, and he walked straight in their house, went to the third floor, and never left the third floor of their house again. Oh gosh. Um, and so some historians, and my father was a psychiatrist, um, and some historians and some psychiatrists sort of write about this as one of the first times that we began to understand PTSD. And the impact that a really traumatic event can have on a person for the entire rest of their lives, and so um, that was one of the stories, like the that my father would tell about our family, is that you know we had this ancestor who 
is, you know, this had this like really super intense experience. And so, um, and my father was a bit of like an amateur civil war historian himself. And so um, we definitely grew up steeped in, mm-hmm. in this appreciation for history. And so it's, it's definitely like another thing that we share. How did both of you guys, you're talking a lot about history and your interest in historical markers and especially the Civil War, and you're both Yankees, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so you both ended up in the South. Yeah. How does that kind of affect Influence your reading? The work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I still, I've only been here for um, four and a half years, so it takes me a long time to develop research threads within my practice. So I still haven't quite figured out how that will influence the kind of work that I'm making. And is Chattanooga the only place you've lived in the Southeast? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, So that's interesting. I've never really been to Chattanooga. Kind of digging it. Yeah. Pretty cool. Chattanooga's great. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And, and, and we didn't, come down to the South when I was a kid. So I didn't really have very much experience at all um, in this region. And so I'm still figuring that out. And and I'm sure it will in five years really be influencing what I'm making. I don't know yet. We just, I actually just moved to Tallahassee in July uh, from Indiana. So I had been in the Midwest for a long time because I had moved up to Iowa for graduate school and then lived in Minnesota and then Indiana. And so um, in the Midwest, there's sort of, um, there's a lot of interesting um, history and kind of myths in the Midwest, Mm -hmm. but you have to dig a little bit deeper to get to them. Um, And then what I kind of appreciate now about being in Tallahassee, Tallahassee is kind of an unusual town because it's, it's in Florida, but it's it's really not culturally Florida. It's really Georgia. It's kind of like South Georgia. I, yeah. I went to high school in Albany, which is like oh. a little over an hour from Tallahassee. Yeah. So it's the same kind of culture in Albany. Yeah. As it, I, like I used to go shopping when I was in high school in Tallahassee. That's yeah, and it's and it's also a college town, right. and it's the state capital, and so politically it's very different from the rest of the Panhandle. It's it's very um, progressive. And the rest of the panhandle is very conservative. And then um, it also has a lot of the markers of, you know, any college town. And so in some ways, and, and there's a lot of transplants there who come to Florida State University who are educated in the Northeast. And so it, in some ways you, and I'm sure Athens is really, people always tell me they're like, oh, Tallahassee is really similar to Athens. Um, and so I think, um, but still what is interesting to me about the South is how on the surface a lot of the history is and a lot of the conversations are Mm -hmm. and i think that there's a way in the north and in the midwest where you can avoid thinking about a lot of the painful and problematic histories of the united states and even living in minnesota where some of the worst atrocities that the american government um ever perpetrated happen in Minnesota against the indigenous populations there. Uh, there's still a way that, that you can live there and completely avoid ever having to think critically about those painful histories. And I think in the South, it's it's harder to insulate yourself 
from having to engage with it, which is something that I that I appreciate. I think the other thing is for me, it's important that we be self-reflexive within our work. And so like I'm not I am not interested in like criticizing right-wing people <laughs> only, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, I'm a, I'm like a lefty for sure, but I think that there's a lot of self-congratulatory behavior that happens with people who are on the left, and, yeah. um, and I'm not interested in that. Um, yeah. So even when my work has <clears throat> focused on like contemporary politics, it's as much um, having a critical read on what's happening on the left as it is on the right, um, because there's crazy weird things that are happening in on all sides, and. You know, I mean, if you think about environmental policy, like a lot of a lot of the people that um, we look at as being heroes of um, environmentalism are also being, you know, like they're not they're not taking into account um, indigenous experiences of the landscape, yeah. right? Um, they're very much for a particular type of people. Um, right. Like I've been reading a lot of Edward Abbey lately. Mm-hmm. Do you know his work? Um, uh, he's, he's really well known for this book that he wrote, Desert Solitaire, which is about, um, Arches National Park. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of like a hero, um, yeah. for the idea of like the empty, you know, um, pristine landscape and people are always like, oh yeah, you know, national parks are so crowded and I really agree with Edward Abbey that they should be, you know, these kind of exclusive spaces. But if you read what he's, he's talking about, he straight up says that he thinks that national parks are not for, um, uh, you know, elderly people. He says mm-hmm. that they had their chance, <laughs> um, and so you know they shouldn't. They wish that he says like, oh, there should not be accessible trails. Um, there should not be cars available. Mm-hmm. There should not, you know, like he's not interested in any of that. But it's like, but who does that? Who does that leave out of the picture, right? Um, and he's a hero of, you know, the environmental movement, um, mm-hmm. which is just interesting to me to think about, like how it is more. It's more complex, right? Yeah. And like unraveling all of those stories, whether it's north and south or right and left, yeah. you know. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting what you're saying about being self-reflective. And, you know, I don't know, for me, part of that comes into looking at conservative Southern culture because that's where I come from. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't know. I have a kind of... a mixed feeling about it because I feel like I have kind of a duty to be critical of the conservative right because yeah it's my background um yeah but it is it is kind of tricky because you don't want to come across as flip yeah yeah I don't know it's a well and I think there's also a way there's a way to engage in conversation where you are empathetic and humble and vulnerable and willing to see that that you are also bringing prejudices and mm-hmm. preconceived ideas and problematic ideas with you to the conversation. And right. so I think you always have to be willing to cast that same critical gaze on on yourself that you're yep. casting on anyone else. Right. And, and that's actually something that I really appreciate about working with Katie is that... Um, the 
seeing her work through ideas and problems and her own work and knowing that when she, you know, when she calls me and says, I think that we, you need to re-examine this idea, um, knowing that she is also pushing herself through those same challenging and difficult conversations in her own work and knowing, and then knowing that I, that I can be open and vulnerable to those criticisms that she's bringing to me because I know that she's also bringing that to her own work. And so I think that's something that, um, you know, that we all need to strive for is to be willing to have your mind changed. Yes. Not about everything. Certainly, I think we have to have certain ethics and ideas that we that we hold fast to. But but being willing to put up any of your ideas to scrutiny, Mm -hmm. I think is really important. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about this. But um the work that Meredith was making when we were in grad school was this um, uh, self-portraiture storytelling yeah. work. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, where she'd have like an image of her face um, and then, and usually some language associated yeah. with it. Yeah. And it was very tender work, you know, like <laughs> yeah. really um, open work. Yeah. And then in some of, like I have some projects that I've done that are, um, like personal storytelling, you know, like um, first person video talking right to the camera. And I've never really thought about the fact that we both kind of have this um, sort of like self, yeah, self portraiture kind of practice in a weird way and how much that might impact the way that we approach thinking about vulnerability within yeah. the work. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think about that with the work that you're making right now, too, you know, in terms of, like, trying to understand your place in relationship to men, right? Yeah, it's real weird. Because it is very much about the other. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of have to accept that. Because mm-hmm. I, I really don't feel like I see myself in these little monsters that I'm creating. Mm. The ones with sewing in them, I do. Mm-hmm. I feel like they're more like I'm implicated in man-making. Mm-hmm. Um, but the paintings are just straight up like, this is another. Mm-hmm. And you're trying to figure it out. And I'm trying to figure it out. It's yeah. like, I see you. Yeah. I don't understand you, but mm-hmm. I, I witness what is happening. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things I think is so great about making art is that we have this ability to kind of through our studio practice work through threads of thought you know like I'm trying to understand this thing and I'm and the way that I do that is through making and researching you know and that's really different than the way other academics would approach something oh yeah that's very interesting I was going to talk to you about CCAC a little bit because I'm not used to presenting at conferences and stuff but I was interested in this and I see that you're yeah. heading the conference. Yeah. As a studio artist, I feel very awkward at any of these kind of academic conferences, presenting yeah. a paper. Uh, like I did my first poster recently. I felt like I was doing a science fair project. I was like, this is really weird. <laughs> Posters like, are weird. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> like, yeah. 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 It's like a threefold. It's like something I did in middle school. Yeah. And I was like, I, this just doesn't apply to my life. Yeah. 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 So to try to talk about a studio practice academically is a real balancing act. Yeah, uh, but I think it's, you know, it's helpful. Um, so um, CCAC, is, CCAC is really amazing as a conference. It's uh, It feels really different than other 
academic art conferences that I've been to, very supportive. It's the second largest art conference in the country, um, art and art history conference. Mm -hmm. And it is sort of split between studio artists and art historians. And the thing that I think is unique about CCAC is that there are moments where those art historians and artists are coming together and in the, in the audience and other conferences I've been to, it's like all the art historians are together critiquing each other and the artists might be together. Whereas this is very much like interdisciplinary in that way. And so you might have an art historian who will bring something different to your work. So I, I have presented at CCAC on my teaching mm-hmm. um, as well as on my own art practice and I think it's a good moment of reflection to be able to, like, in some ways, in the same way you would put together a solo show, right, to be able to, like, put that into a presentation and say, like, these are the threads of thought that I'm approaching, and here's how I'm thinking about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and put that in context with, like, four or five other panelists who are thinking about the same kind of ideas that you're thinking about does help to kind of build some connections in ways that you might not otherwise. So I think it's just like what you were saying about investigating through art. Yeah. <clears throat> I have a hard time uh, getting in front of like other historians or like yeah. panelists because it. I'm very slow in my investigations and they're very visual. So it takes me like years to figure out what I'm what doing. What I'm doing, yeah. yeah. That happens yeah. to me too. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. I think so I um I'm a curator. My, you know, I'm on the faculty at Florida State University, but I am not an art professor. I teach, currently I actually teach in the graduate art history program. Mm -hmm. And I have an MFA. I don't have a PhD. And Mm -hmm. so um, I'm sort of thinking about, like, constantly um, having some imposter syndrome uh, symptoms where I... um, get to be in the presence of some really, really amazing Mm -hmm. traditional art history scholars who um, present their work and approach their work in a way that's very different than what I do. And um, it's hard, I think, as, as visual artists, I think sometimes we don't give ourselves enough credit for the amount of research that we do. And I think we also sometimes um, make ourselves separate from a traditional approach to scholarship, Mm -hmm. where I actually think that the work that we do belongs at, I mean, I'm at a research university. I think the work that I do belongs in a conversation of research and of interrogation. And scholarship. I wonder if that's, for me, I feel like I wonder if it's part of being a woman that I feel this kind of, like the imposter syndrome yeah. of academia. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I feel like it is partially in my case. Yeah. Yeah. That it's, it's just the way that I was raised to kind of, uh, and to think very differently about art and scholarship. Mm-hmm. You know, like when I studied in New York, one of the major things that just blew me away was like, oh, artists are intellectuals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I'd never had seen it that way mm-hmm. until yeah. I moved there. I mean, one thing I think is really great at, at my university, I teach at the University of Tennessee, Chattanooga, they actually refer to the work that we do as artists as creative research. Mm. Um, and, and I appreciate that. The word creative, I find a little squishy, you know, because mm-hmm. I don't really know what that means. Um, but I... 
I have, you know, always been making research. I, I refer to my work as a research-based practice, and that comes from certainly from like the nerd zone of wanting to be in a library and reading lots of books and um, trying to understand the, the the stories that you know form the ideas that I'm working on, and that is very particular to the kind of work that I make. Right, like I don't make paintings. I am not deeply invested in a particular material, right? But I think that materially driven practices are as much research. Like there's a visual research, there's an understanding of a medium and what that medium can do um, and how that medium communicates. Yeah, I get real geeky on a technical level. But I think that, that, yeah, and I think that that is also research, right? So like you are an expert in that in the same way that, um, you know, traditional academics in the sciences and humanities are experts in their field. We don't do yeah. we didn't do comprehensive exams, but I don't think that that means that we don't know <clears throat> our medium and our history. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I've had a hard time, you know, calling myself an expert. I'm there at this point because I'm old. But um, you know, it's been a it's been a hard thing. But then on the flip side of that, I think it's been really good for me because I tend to just kind of keep going with the next generation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I never have kind of coasted into a more senior view of myself as an expert. So I just keep looking for like the next new thing that mm-hmm. is happening out there. Mm-hmm. So in my in my art practice, it's been helpful. In mm-hmm. some ways, I think it's detrimental to me as a academic, <laughs> but you know. Yeah. No, I feel I I feel you know. I think I have an interesting position. Um, I think if you look around, the majority of the people, and I actually do some research on curatorial labor in the academy. Um, if you look at the majority of people who have my job at institutions that are similar to Florida State, they are art historians with PhDs, mm-hmm. and they are um, they come from a very different background. And I actually, I I think that I am able to be a more interesting curator because of my artistic practice. Um, And I think that I have a sensitivity to materiality and to process that a lot of other, um, that can sometimes be missing from a conversation that's driven by art historians. And so I do think that it's important that we understand um, the role that our expertise plays Mm -hmm in the kinds of conversations that we're participating in. And I also think it's really important that artists like stake some claim in national conversations and acknowledge the work and the labor that we do um, in these, in these spaces. And I think it's really easy to alienate artists and to say that, um, and to say like, Oh, art is something that's happening on their periphery. Art is something that exists for, like a privileged group of people who, and and to some extent that can be true, but I also think it's really important for us to, um, to emphasize and to tell our own story really well about how we are impacting and participating in really big, important conversations um, as, as researchers, as scholars, as creative people, as critical thinkers. And that we also have an ob- as academics, we have an obligation to our students mm-hmm. to to model that for them mm-hmm. and really make that case a little bit better. And I think if 
you know, it, I'm not, I don't want to like do victim blaming when it comes to like national funding for the arts and things like that, because I don't think it's the fault of artists that we are constantly seeing funding cut for the arts in this country. But I also think that we can, um, that we have an opportunity to um, just tell our story better in, you know, in this bigger conversation. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. Well, and I think even if you look at, and this isn't necessarily a positive example, but even if you look at the conversation that's happening right now around monuments Mm. in this country, like that is about art, right? Right. Like that art object is the thing that is driving that conversation. And that's allowing, and I don't think any of the artists who made those monuments expected at that time for these conversations to be happening now, but the fact that there is an art object there is allowing the nation to have this conversation publicly in a way that I don't think we would have had if we didn't have those public um, yeah. sculptures. Right. You totally. know? So totally. um, art has power, yeah. you know? And maybe that feels squishy, but I think it's important for us to think about. Yeah. And I think it's also important. I would I would very strongly encourage you to present at CCAC. I <laughs> love CCAC. I think it's super fun. I also, I do a lot of work for CAA. I'm on a committee for CAA and I go to CAA every year and I also presented at CAA this year. And so, but, um, and I think that CAA is a very art history dominated mm-hmm. um, organization and conference. And so it feels really different. CCAC, I think really is very evenly split between historians and um, practitioners. And so it actually, a lot more interesting conversation comes out of it because of that. And then also, I, I it's a great place to network, especially if you live in the Southeast, like you will meet everyone. And, and it's in Chattanooga. Have, it's in Chattanooga yeah. in October 2019, <clears throat> October 16th through 19th. Um, we have a really great lineup. Um, uh, my colleague Christina Vogel and I are um, the co-directors of the conference. Mm-hmm. Um, this year, we're really excited because the president of the conference, um, the keynote, and the juror are all women. So it's a nice. women-run conference, which is great. Um, Sandra Reed is the president um, of CCAC right now, and she's great. Um, uh, we are bringing in Sharon Loudon as our keynote. Do you know mm-hmm. her work? Yeah. Um, and um, uh, she's just such an amazing advocate for uh, the arts and um, for being generous. And I think that yeah. that really embodies the um, ethos of CCAC. So I think it should, it'll be a great um, relationship. And then Amelia Briggs is our juror um, from David Lusk Nashville. Yeah, she's been on the podcast. I know, I love yeah. that episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, I didn't realize she was from Indiana, which was something I learned on the mm-hmm. podcast. A lot of um, people are from Indiana true. and then leave. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so she's she's during the exhibition and we're partnering with Stoveworks um, for the for the jury exhibition. And Christina and I are trying to make a conference that um, that, you know, fits with our ethics. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is the first time ever, as far as we know, that the juried exhibition is free to submit to. Um, so we've oh. been doing fundraising to make that possible. I think that that will um, really increase the visibility and um, uh, of the conference in some ways. Um, so we're really excited. Um, <clears throat> it's, a, it's a lot of work, but it's definitely um, going to be a great conference. Super fun. So you bring up Stoveworks. This is the first time I've been to Chattanooga like since I was a kid. Yeah. And so I'm kind of really having fun discovering the city right now. 
um, and would love to hear a little bit about what's going on. So I'm showing at Versa. Yep. At Stoveworks is another contemporary gallery. Yep. Um, uh, yeah, Chattanooga has, I think, an emerging contemporary scene. So mm-hmm. um, when I moved here, there were really two um, uh, two places that um, were showing artwork. There's the Hunter Museum of American Art, mm-hmm. um, uh, and they have a great um, show up right now. If you have time, you should get over there. I am there. planning to go today. Yeah, it's a beautiful show. Um, Allison Schatz, I think that's how you pronounce her name. Um uh, and then AVA, um, the Association for Visual Arts, um, they've been around for a long time, pretty traditional um, uh, nonprofit art space. Um, and then uh, Versa is run by some former UTC students, and they're mm-hmm. doing an amazing job bringing in really um, incredible artists from around the region. They, I don't think they've had a lot of people who are from outside of the Southeast um, or who don't have some connection to the Southeast, but... Um, you know, David Henry Anderson had a show there mm-hmm. in the winter, really awesome, um, shows and, um, they've been doing a great job. I'm very impressed. Um, uh, so that's a shout out to our alum. And then, um, Stoveworks is new. So it's, um, um, a artist residency and exhibition program. And they're still, they've just recently broken ground on their artist residency program, but it's going to be live work um, spaces with an exhibition and education program. Um, And I cannot wait for that to get off the ground because it will really bring so much talent to Chattanooga. Um, Selfishly, I'm excited to like meet all of the artists that that they bring in. So I'm I'm so happy that that uh, is happening. Charlotte Caldwell is the director of that space and she's from Chattanooga, but then had worked at um, Wasaic uh, in Mm -hmm. upstate New York for a while. And so she's really bringing some um, smart ideas back to Chattanooga, which we're really excited about. But they've been, they've had a great um, exhibition program uh, as they've been working on their permanent um, home. And that program has been, I think it is under the name Land and Sea. Um, and uh, it's, the shows are so great. Um, so they have one up right now called Fluctuating Meridians. Um, and it's been a series of um, maybe six shows um, total that they're going to be having until they get their exhibition space um, up and running. So it's really, really awesome. Um, nice. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for talking to me today, guys. Really appreciate it. This has been great. Thank you so much. Thank you. So that was Katie Hargrave and Meredith Lynn. Thanks again to both Katie and Meredith for sharing some of their work and their thoughts and for taking some time out of their small and very valuable window of collaborative working time to be on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to seeing what they come up with and can't wait to go check out their show at the Wiregrass Museum. They both have some individual projects going on as well. Katie Hargrave and her colleagues at UTC are hosting the CCAT conference on October 16th through 19th. The call for papers is open until April 1st, and the call for the juried exhibition is open until April 15th. In May, Meredith Lynn will be part of Divine Providence, an exhibition of new work by Nicole Jean Hill, Meredith Lynn, and Lee Running at the Morris Grave Museum of Art in Eureka, California. You can find links to all of these projects and exhibitions, as well as links to other events, venues, projects, and people that were mentioned in this episode, episode 23, links to both Katie and Meredith's websites, 
and pictures of their work and our visit on the Peachy Keen page of my website at Vivian Liddell, that's V-I-V-I-A-N-L-I-D-D-E-L-L dot com. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to help support the podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or check out our Patreon page. You can find the link to the Patreon page on the Peachy Keen tab at VivianLiddell.com. Episode 24 has already been recorded, so you can look for that soon. It's with another Chattanooga artist, Christina Vogel, who does some serious perceptual investigations into our everyday world with paint. Until then, I hope you're all enjoying the spring, or at least surviving the onslaught of pollen if you're like me, and that your days are peachy keen.